also a traditional Jewish, Christian, and Muslim. Well, you know how I remember how to do this, Preston. Our audience doesn't know how long it's been since we last recorded. How long it's been, and how close we're pushing it to the deadline. Right. Um, But yeah, it's been a minute since we sat down together to host the The Holy Watermelon Watermelon Podcast. Podcast. Uh, But yeah, we're back with a new kind of multi-episode topic. Yeah, this I one's know. a little bit more serious than the theme of February. Yeah, February was really sexy. Yeah, it was. <laughs> what a sexy month. <laughs> not really. Not where we are, but... <laughs> Maybe in warmer parts of the world, it's a sexy month. Maybe. I just wear a parka. But February is that time where we celebrate the sexiness. Fair. Maybe to offset the depression Fair. of the winter... And definitely, you know, to keep warm. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Yeah. So today we are talking about Islam and our next episode, we're talking about Islam. We're talking about two different parts. Aspects. Aspects of Islam. So let's jump right in, I guess. All right. Well, we've talked about Islam before. Long time ago. Uh, We talked mostly about Muhammad, the Quran, the Hadith, things like that. Didn't really talk about... The history and the splits and everything after that in as much detail as we're going to do today. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about Sunni versus Shia Muslims. That's sort of the big divide. I want to a little bit theologically, but it's mostly a historical divide. Pretty much. Yeah. It's mostly I like this guy and it sucks that you guys don't. (laughs) (laughs) An early presidential race. Sure. (laughs) So Islam is a, a, a relatively new religion compared, I mean, compared to, to the other popular Abrahamic ones. counterparts or even the Eastern religions. Yeah. Uh, it was developed in the 7th century CE in, in the Middle East. The founder, as Preston mentioned, is Muhammad, and he had revelations from God, which are now documented in the Muslim holy book of the Quran. Muhammad, the Quran, eh? Quran, not the Quran. Quran. I Am know. I just putting my emphasis wrong? We'll <laughs> ask. We'll ask Doctor. Depends who you ask. Like we'll ask Doctor West next week. There you go. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Uh, <laughs> alluding, foreshadowing. <laughs> Muhammad, however, was really bad at succession planning. That depends who you ask. There are people who insist that he had things set up. The majority disagree. <laughs> I would disagree. So he had amassed quite a following by his death in 632 CE, but he didn't tell anyone what he wanted to do with his recitation after he passed and, and this commu- this Muslim community he had built. So And he, he didn't have any sons. Which back in that day, even to this to this day, still there's some obviously uh first male heir. Or only male heir is the thing. So, yeah, that's it feels weird. But I mean, that's that's a thing that happens. Lots of men just don't make sons. I mean, yeah. Henry VIII had a hell of a time. Right. <laughs> I mean, one and then he died. Mm-hmm. So his Y chromosome was deficient. Yep. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how that works. Then uh, They didn't either. Because he kept killing his wives for it. Yeah. I mean, not all of them. Just, Most of just them. a couple. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So to put this into context before we get to where the split is, is Muhammad had actually done something quite remarkable at this time in history. Arabia was very tribal. You lived with your family units. And he had essentially broken those boundaries and created the Ummah or the Nation of Islam. Yeah, which is different than the Nation of Islam that is a existing thing right, today. Right, yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> the, the, it's an, um, the umbrella term. They Abba. were a nation, yeah. an Islamic nation. But the Ummah is definitely different from what is popularly known today as the Nation of yes, Islam. <laughs> Muslim Fellowship is probably named yeah. another group. But uh, yeah, this group of Muslims, <laughs> the Ummah, not having the succession plan which, I mean, has since mostly sorted itself out, was really quite devastating at his death. Yeah. I mean, to say it sorted itself out feels a little weird, but yeah. I, I mean, they got there eventually. There is There's two groups. a solution. Yeah. <laughs> They're not still fighting over it for the most part. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, it's a little more complicated than two groups. We've got two <laughs> big umbrellas under which many groups yes, huddle. I actually, that was the point I added at the end of the document. So I don't <laughs> want this to be an oversimplification, but it is the two major groups of yeah. Islam. So, so right. here's where we get the split. Some believed that the caliph, that, which is the term for the successor to Muhammad, like a, what was the word that Reza Aslan used? Like a deputy almost. Yeah, like you look and people will be familiar with the term caliphate. Um, yeah. Which now, because of ISIS and the Taliban have negative connotations, but it's the king and a kingdom, a caliph and a caliphate. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea was that this caliph would be somebody who sh should be properly qualified. Someone who is close to Muhammad, understood and witnessed his teachings and then as generations went on, the next closest thing as possible as time made it difficult to get the closest thing. And then there were others who believed that it should be more of an inherited thing through the closest possible relative to Muhammad. And so bloodline super important there, no matter whether they were any good. <laughs> whether you understood his teachings or not, you were related to him, so... yeah. I mean, that is an interesting debate on, like, is divinity genetic? And I guess that's part of, part of this. That's part of the deal. This conversation, yeah. Yeah. So, generally speaking, the Sunni Muslims were interested in those qualified leaders, and they make up the majority. <laughs> About 85%, depending on where you get your statistics, sometimes that number might be as low as 80. It's... Very obviously, the vast majority and this of Muslims. Is a, this is a global majority. Yeah. There are yeah. Shia Muslim countries, obviously. Yeah. Uh, density varies, of course, from country to country. There are a handful of countries that have a Shia majority. And, of course, the Shiites are the ones who are interested in that inheritance tradition. And they have more clear-cut sectarianism than the Sunnis have. That's so, interesting. I'd also, I didn't look into it now that we're talking I'm, thinking about it is the record keeping mm -hmm. of Muhammad and all of his descendants to whoever they look as at as the leader now would be quite interesting. Yeah. Um, literacy <laughs> is an interesting aspect of that too, that the Quran wasn't written down right away. Mm -hmm. uh, it was written down a little later on and the Hadiths 
even a little later by the sound right of yeah and i think uh next next episode we'll hear a lot about that yeah in, anyway so muhammad's father-in-law father of the infamously young aisha was elected the first caliph in 632 and then only died two years later his name was abu Bakr. yes and super important guy he is respected by both Sunni and Shia Muslims. And in fact, the next couple people who follow after him also are accepted by both groups. And then things get hairy. And then things get messier. <laughs> uh, the name Sunni comes from the term Sunnah or the way or the tradition. Generally, it's just a handy catch-all word. <laughs> it, it is quite a broad term. Yeah. It basically is used to identify the Sunnis as the Orthodox group, as though a, a bunch of subcategories and internal deviations didn't rapidly become evident. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as soon as Abu Bakr was selected by the majority of the Council of Old Companions of Muhammad, there were a handful of small groups who jumped at the opportunity for independence. And Abu Bakr smashed... The, all of these rebellions pretty effectively, well, not all of them, most of them very effectively, and declared that all Muslims belonged to the single community, that Ummah that we had mentioned before, that relied on interconnectivity of religion and state. One of those things that we have some serious issues with today. All right. <laughs> yeah, the, the idea of religious disestablishment was a novelty a thousand years after this time. Connecting religion and government was extremely normal. Yeah. Man, what was I reading the other day? It wasn't even about Islam, but basically saying that, like, this idea of the separation of church and state is so new that no one would have even considered it. Yeah. Now I want to know what religion they were talking about. What was I listening to? Oh, I was reading a book about Jesus, but they were talking about the Roman Empire okay. and the, the Roman pantheon and. Sure. Separating church and state wasn't even a concept. That's what it was. Yeah. Mostly, I just needed to. Perfect. For my brain piles and be okay with that. Uh, yeah. So some of the Ummah really wanted a closer relative of the Prophet to be a successor. So that was Ali, who eventually, after lots of fighting to, hey, I want to be the boss, was the fourth of the great big bosses. <laughs> so full name Ali Ibn Abi Talib was Muhammad's cousin and son-in-law. So he married Fatima and was in the running from the beginning to be Arabia's next top caliph. <laughs> but as uh, Preston mentioned, it took the first three dying mostly violently for Ali to finally be elected in 656. And he also didn't last very long. He only lasted five years to 661 CE. Yeah. Um, Aisha, the, the surviving young wife of Muhammad, was not a fan of Ali. She actively campaigned against him all of the time she could before he took over and made it clear that she was not comfortable with him being the boss when he was. Yeah, so. <laughs> Shia comes from the phrase Shia to Ali or partisans of Ali. The camp of Ali. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned, Ali was only lasted five years. He was actually assassinated. And his son Hussein and companions were also killed. 
at the Battle of Karbala in 680. So 20 years, about 20 years after his death. And this anniversary is actually still recognized as a day of mourning for Shia Muslims. So I thought this was really interesting. It's like a big holy day. It's only celebrated. I was going to say half of Muslims, but we know it's about twenty percent of Muslims. Pilgrimages to Saint's Tomb are made. Passion plays are performed, and they include battles and coffins. People even flog themselves in the streets to commemorate the sacrifice. It's actually really weird how much we see overlap in traditions of behavior between Shia Muslims. And the old school Catholics. Yeah, it is. You got veneration of saints. You got floggings. It's, it's just kind this of an like interesting level thing to see. Of, <laughs> and part of the reason I'm so in, like I like religion is this level of drama that we see. That's fair. Yeah, and this is an excellent example of a very dramatic, group. very dramatic. <laughs> It would take a lot for me to. I wouldn't flog myself. I take a lot for me to flog myself. I don't know what that is. So. What it would take to get you there? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's yeah. not a thing I have any interest no, in neither. participating like, in. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even like clipping a hangnail. Sure. No. <laughs> so. Terrible. Yeah, so after Ali, the Shia had a line of imams that the Sunnis didn't follow. This is where we got our big split. Uh, they counted Ali as the first imam, totally ignoring... The, the, the rightly first... guided caliphs, as they're often called, apart from Ali. And the sixth of that line was Jafar ibn Muhammad. Not the same Muhammad, we're a few generations down now. And so when Jafar died, there was another major split. Two of Jafar's sons, Ismail and Musa, each had a good handful of people who were really committed to following him. During a troubled time before Jafar's death, he had sent Ismail away just to protect him as the heir apparent and then told everybody that he had died. Uh, that's generally agreed upon by both sides. And then a whole bunch of people are like, well, yeah, he's dead. Jafar said so. <laughs> <laughs> and then they never saw him again. So yep. it was easy to believe. Be true. We don't have record keeping like we do now. <laughs> Well, and if somebody really wants to disappear for their own protection, it's, it's a it's little harder possible. now, but it's still possible. It was much easier back then. <laughs> um, but some people were ready to believe and really, really stuck to the idea that Ismail was just in hiding and wasn't dead. And so those who insisted on the supremacy of Ismail as the oldest son were actually a really small minority out of the greater group because Ismail was unavailable to lead. His son took over leadership for this group who was really committed to the Ismaili line. Those that followed Musa, the living and present third son of Jafar, were the strong minority. Major majority. The strong majority. <clears throat> uh, and the group continued the line of imams until a 12th. And between... Uh, Musa and the the 11th, historically not as significant. They, they each had contributions. They did some cool stuff. But for the sake of brief history, <laughs> they're easy enough to skip. The 11th Imam, Hassan al-Askari, was poisoned in 874 CE. And a fella named Uthman just decided, hey, 
everybody. There's another one. Secretly, Alaskari had a son named Muhammad. Ooh. And nobody could prove him prove wrong. Prove it, prove it, yeah. But, you know, there's... I'm sure there were some people who didn't believe it. And they made a smaller group that doesn't seem to have stuck around. Because my guess is just conjecture. <laughs> <laughs> but Uthman promised that there was this son that was born a few years before Hassan al-Askari died. And there was just this idea that everybody clung to that, yeah, of course, there's this this secret occultation, mm. which is just fancy word of he's in hiding, of this son that nobody could ever see him, but there would be deputies who would speak for him to protect Ooh, him. Ooh, cool, I like it. Right? So Uthman said, I have a successor. And this lasted for four deputies until the fourth just didn't name a successor. And so we went from a, a, a lesser occultation to a greater occultation, which is still the deal today. We're still in that period of greater occultation because oh. he's still hidden. And so the Twelver Shias believe in this 12th imam who is hiding somewhere most say heaven and will come back to restore islam after it is sufficiently degraded interesting yeah sounds familiar right (laughs) times two (laughs) at least two yeah this uh, a popular tradition (laughs) it is uh yeah it is uh it is a good story Whereas my dad would say it's a good yarn. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously these groups are split. But there are similarities. They're not so out there most of the different Most of the splits are just over leadership. Yep. It's actually really interesting. It's very different from what we see in Christianity in that way. I mean, a lot of it's about leadership. Let's be real. But the, the theology isn't... The theolo- as widely different. Yes, it is interesting how there isn't this same level of, and I mean, I'm not this person, this might be a better for Preston's hot take, but this like dissection of a holy book where there's so many interpretations of it and intertextuality. And well, if you read this from the Old Testament, it influences the meaning of the New Testament. And and that's where we see all these splits in Christianity. So it's actually quite impressive. Yeah, I mean, um, we get a little bit of that. Oh, absolutely. Islam. We do. And, but and yeah, I've, not to the same degree. Nowhere. Every time you turn around, there's a new church with a slightly different belief propping up. Right. So we, we kind of followed the line on how the Shia split off and then split within themselves. Kind of ignored the Sunni history from the point of the Shia split. They've largely been really good at staying a big group. There are different schools of thought, but different Sunnis from different schools of thought generally still go to the same mosque and worship together. You don't see a whole lot of Baptists going to a Catholic church. Yes, <laughs> and, and they are. They're called schools of Islam. And, and obviously there are branches. I find them almost harder to follow. It is actually um, very tricky sometimes. And, and again, I don't want to like pigeonhole an entire group of people, but two very obviously splits 
in doctrine and interpretation are groups like ISIS and the Taliban. Yeah. Right? So again, that's a extreme Well, and they follow side. a philosophy that showed up very early on in this whole history of splitting. And they were very committed basically to the idea that Muhammad is the perfect example for everything. And anybody who doesn't want to follow that example isn't worthy to live. In the most extreme cases. Yes. In fact, I remember a guy that I ran into when I was living in New Jersey that I don't remember how it came up. If it feels weird without context, <laughs> there wasn't a lot well, of context than... when I was first told this, but he told me that it's very important for Muslim men to pee sitting down because that's what Muhammad did. There wasn't a good context for him to bring this up. I don't have more context for that <laughs> for as far as history goes. <laughs> but it's very important that they followed Muhammad's example in everything they could, which is um, why you see the all of the full body coverings is because Muhammad's wives were told they must cover themselves. And for some people, it was like a rich people thing. Poor people didn't do that. And other people are like, no, it's it's just Muhammad. Don't worry about it. And other people are like, well, no, if we're going to be like Muhammad as the perfect example, our wives are going to be covered. Yeah. So, yes, there are. <laughs> and again, those are just obviously two very extreme set examples of how within these two big groups, there have been more doctrinal splits and interpretation yeah. splits. Because but... as history goes, you're not always going to be talking to the next community over about how you're developing your theology. And I mean, then there's socioeconomic, political yeah, influences. So many that's, a, that's a whole different episode. Yeah. But uh, bringing it back to our <laughs> episode guide, similarities, lots of similarities, like Preston said, lots are universal. Or at least pretty close to universal. Pretty, I mean, I'm sure there's some someone somewhere that will say, I don't believe that. <laughs> um, because nothing... Is monolithic. Right, exactly. But um, you know what's monotheistic? Islam. Yeah. Some of the standouts that might not fit into these similarities categories will be groups like Louis Farrakhan's right. um, Muslim revival among the African-American population. Right. Which has had an interesting path all its own. That's its own episode. It's <laughs> Yeah. Interesting is a kind way to put it. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, uh, monotheistic and Muhammad is God's messenger. That we talked about it in our very first episode on Islam. That is said to you when you're born. That is said to you when you die. That is the declaration of faith. There is one God and Muhammad is his messenger. Yeah. The Shahada. Shahada. Thank you. <laughs> uh, prayer. Yeah. Oh, the five pillars of Islam. So, yes, Shahada, prayer, charitable giving. A seasonal fasting, Ramadan, and the pilgrimage to Mecca. The month of Ramadan. Yes. Just calling it Ramadan is strongly discouraged. It's really? Yeah. Okay. So the month of Ramadan. Yeah. The pilgr and pilgrimage to Mecca. Yeah. Or the Hajj is that one. And, and I mention that because people will make pilgrimages all the time, but you're supposed yeah. to do the Hajj once in your life, which yeah. is a special pilgrimage during the 12th month of their lunar calendar yeah so i going back to the ramadan thing because mm -hmm. that's still on my mind because that's, so that's the way my brain works uh there's uh, a really great way that was phrased that's attributed to muhammad 
that explains why you don't just say Ramadan when talking about the month or the feast, or no, sorry, the fasting season, is because you don't say Ramadan is over or Ramadan has passed because Ramadan is a name of God. And to say that Ramadan oh. is gone, it counts as a great a heresy. Wow, <laughs> dear. Yeah. Thank you for educating me. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Uh, uh, yes. But for everyone. <laughs> exactly. Not just me. Correct. <laughs> the only, yeah, so we've mentioned the month of Ramadan, the performance of the Hajj. The only thing I mentioned it briefly under the five pillars is praying, but communal prayer. Yeah. Specific. With the group as much as possible. As much as possible is uh, more specific. Yeah. Boy. Actually, I really like the way that. Um, Reza Aslan explained it in his book, No God But God. That we read with our Patreon book club. So right. if you want to join us, um, hop onto Patreon, join our book club. We do a book every couple months. Yeah. So he, the way he explained it was that more than belief was the importance of ritual. That he really made sure the community was tight-knit by having these communal prayers, among other things. We should um, do a social media post on orthopraxy versus orthodoxy. Yeah. So orthodoxy is the right belief mm -hmm. and orthoprax orthopraxy is the right practice. And both Jewish people and Muslims are more orthopractic. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, whereas Christians tend to be more orthodoxic. It matters more what you believe than what you do as opposed to what you do versus what you believe. But either yeah. way, they mostly these things are just... Ways to separate other people and say they're not going to heaven. Totally. They're and, no and, good. And, uh, and some of this is quite intertwined, right? Like, yeah. It's. Well, what you do is connected to what you believe. Right. Like, so you can not eat pork as, as a Jewish person or as a Muslim person, but it'll be a lot harder to not eat pork if you don't understand the belief around why you exactly. don't eat pork, for example. That's a really rudimentary example, but it's what came to mind. Yeah. And. There's this idea of a Mahdi in both groups of Muslims. They, and that's about the, the, as specific as you can get when you talk about similarities. There's a lot of varying beliefs on what this Redeemer is supposed to be. Like we talked about the Twelvers. That's a, a guy who was supposed to have been born. And then was hidden away and will come back. I, I mentioned in a little <laughs> later on in the notes, I mentioned that there's a group that already believes he's returned. Mm. So, again. Um, lots of different beliefs. Lots of different beliefs. But, again, we're talking about two overarching. Umbrellas. Umbrellas. So, Preston, what are some of the differences? So, with the split, what else happens in both practice and belief? Well, one of the big differences the first on my list is the hadiths. Though all Muslims revere the Quran and are really happy to have the sayings of Muhammad that didn't make it into the Quran, the collections of hadiths are quite varied between the different groups. Um, it doesn't matter what sort of authority a, a hadith claims to have, full stop, the sort of authority is not important. What matters to all Muslim communities is the social and theological value of the hadith. If a genuine saying of a prophet is incompatible with the values of the community, it will be discarded, especially if its preservation benefits a rival group. Mm. That's always going to be the case. So then this next point of hadith being 
some that the Shia love and are disregarded by Sunnis and some that the Sunnis love and are disregarded by Shias yeah. falls right into that. Yes, that's exactly the deal. <laughs> and there's, it's, it's a long list. You get totally different collections in both of these groups. There's plenty of overlap, though, when it's more general, when it doesn't benefit one idea more than another. But that's what we get. Uh, I think this next point is interesting and I put in some thoughts and then I'm having even more thoughts. Okay. So Preston made a note that Hadith studies are as intense as biblical studies and maybe even more heated. Yeah. So much argue. And I think this is really interesting (laughs) for a bunch of reasons because the Quran and the Hadiths weren't written down while Muhammad was alive. Right. So we get into that space of like, the Gospels, where they were written, whatever, 60 to 150 years after Jesus's death. So things change. It's a bad game of telephone, secondhand information, and then people's agendas. And yep. so we know, in some cases, Hadiths were just made up and said to be by Muhammad to give it this authority. But it was really just someone pushing their own agenda and said, but Muhammad said, so there's been a long history of A, sorting out what's true and what's not, and mm-hmm. then... Well, and it's never as simple as Muhammad said. Right. Because um, as much as leaning on that authority sounds great, it's not enough. Right. You've got to say Muhammad said to so-and-so who said to so-and-so who said to so-and-so. And I was there and saw it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really important thing that's kept with all of the hadiths is this line of authoritative almost transmission. Like a, I was going to say almost like a genealogy. Someone uh, said to someone who said to someone. <laughs> yeah. Because it went so long without getting written down. And so that's why it's easy to disregard a lot of things. If it doesn't match what you and your group already believe, just don't worry about it. (laughs) Which, of course, is very frustrating and leads to some really intense study. Yeah. And there's they call them sciences in this field of Hadith study. Um, There's the study of who shared the saying. um, And I... There's different aspects of that, too. You've got the biographical studies on the reliability of a transmitter or recorder. Just like, oh, well, if he beat his wife and lied all the time, he's not he's good. Probably. <laughs> and his hadith says, it's okay to beat your wife and lie all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there are studies of how the saying was transmitted before being recorded on paper. That gets all, all kinds of funny details that people are happy to argue about. You got studies of the circumstantial context of the saying, studies of the prophet's intents in any circumstance. Like, yeah, he said this thing, but this is what's going on. So this is what he meant. Basically the heart of that. So it makes sense that people are studying these things. And it takes up a lot of people's time. (laughs) Uh, You got studies to reconcile contradictory hadiths. Because if Abu says one thing, Ali says another thing, and they contradict each other. You got to figure out why. Mm-hmm. And did they both actually come from Muhammad? Maybe, but in different contexts. Or maybe there's a liar in the group. Maybe they're both wrong. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Um, there's arguments about preferring one over the other. And there's arguments about trying to figure out maybe the truth is somewhere in between. And, of course, most of this work is built to favor the established tenets of the modern Sunni majority. 
there are exceptions because there's different groups, but most of the work is exactly that. Mm -hmm. And hadiths reported through Aisha are not popular with the Shia because she openly, so strongly oppo yeah. openly opposed Ali. <laughs> <laughs> but she was pretty close to Muhammad. She so. was, and counts as a very authoritative a very source. Oh. Wives, man. <laughs> sure. Another difference uh, is Salat or the, the Muslim prayer. So Shia Muslims will place their head on a clay tablet, soil from Karbala, where that big battle was, or some other natural material. Whereas Sunnis will use their prayer rugs, which in North America. It's pretty common. Pretty common. Well, that's probably what you're more familiar with. Also, but not well, all Muslims in Canada are Sunni. No. <laughs> no. So you will see Muslims. No, I would say Canada probably falls along the global average of age 20. Could be. Yeah, could be. Just with immigration. And yeah. Just, I don't know that for sure. Don't quote me on that. We have a pretty sizable, I don't want to say huge, but pretty sizable Ismaili uh, population. I here, feel which like I, think I knew is that. kind of cool. Yeah. Sunni Muslims pray five times a day, and they have very specific times to perform that prayer. So before dawn, early afternoon, late afternoon, after sunset, and nighttime. Many Shias, however, tend to condense some of those prayers into pairs and will only pray three times a day. So it's still the same five prayers, but they do a couple of them at Together. the same time. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of nifty. I mean, as an atheist, I'm like, well, that saves time. <laughs> I like that. Right? Generally speaking... Shia Muslims rely on what the current imam says. And the imam has the freedom to say, no, we're going to do these prayers this way from now on. Until either he changes his mind or the next imam says, no, no, let's go back to this other way. It's very different from the Sunni practice of we were given five prayers. We'll do them at five times. <laughs> and at these times. Yes. So in addition to those five pillars that we had talked about, the Twelver Shias have more, they're, they're often called pillars. They're also called foundational professions of belief. That sounds like a synonym for pillar. Well, your foundation's different than the I thing guess, that holds oh, up the roof. Fair. And I also said synonym. <laughs> I said that word wrong. I said cinnamon, not synonym. Uh, like a champ. <laughs> it's been a long day. Uh, so these five foundational professions of belief, these extra 12-er pillars, monotheism, which is kind of included in the, in the Shahada, but it's, there's a little extra aspect to it, I guess. It's the not just monotheism the way that most Christians talk about it, but it's specifically the oneness of God that a lot of people interpret mm. as almost pantheistic or, or full-on panentheistic. Kind of God is in everything and yeah. everything is God. Yep. Yeah, you, and you get variety of thought in that depending on who you talk to as well. There's also divine justice, the idea that God's judgments are always perfectly just. Very important to this faith. Um, then there's the prophethood of Muhammad. Not just that he is the messenger of God, but that there's a really important status here. And then there's the the succession after Muhammad, the imams, very important foundational principle. 
And then there's the promised day of judgment and resurrection, which is pretty important to most of the, what's the word I'm looking for? Abrahamic faiths. Mm -hmm. That is really, really enshrined here as a capital principle for the, the Twelvers. And an interesting thing, we talked about the Hajj, uh, is Meili's, that Shia minority subgroup, will also honor the pilgrimage to the imam wherever he is. And that's actually more important than going to Mecca. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Uh, on the topic of imams, another big difference is that, again, the Shia believe that the imams are descended from Ali and they're considered near divine, infallible, sinless saints. Which, of course, has a lot of potential problems. Very well. Yes, we should never put any human up on that pedestal. <laughs> anyway, and then Sunnis, on the other hand, are more like your Protestant Christian where you go to school, you're a learned interpreter of the holy book, and anyone can become an imam. Your qualifications Asterisk. are a little bit more than who your dad is. Yeah. <laughs> Which apparently is Mahan. Right. Great, great granddaddy. Yeah. But wait, there's more. <laughs> there's always more. There's always more. <laughs> so again, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, I didn't want this to be an oversimplification of these denominations of Islam. So just like Christianity, uh, there have been dozens of splits over the centuries creating different Islamic branches. Uh, there are three other large sects, the Adabi, Sufism, and Ahmadiyya, and dozens of other schools of thought. Mm -hmm. uh, I threw the Karajites in here, but I don't really yeah. know where they fit. <laughs> they're that was your note. Kind, yeah, they're kind of their own thing. A group that split from the main community when Ali was still around. And their ideas have made a lot of people really uncomfortable, especially more recently. They are the heritage of the fundamentalists, those text literal extremists that we see today mm. in ISIS and the Taliban and, and others. Not only do they have a very strict understanding of a scriptural example as binding law, but they demand that everybody follows their example or die. It's... A little rough. It's pretty extreme. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Sufism, I'm just going to touch on. We do have an episode. We'll talk about it more I later. I won't say plans. It's in our uh, hopper. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sufism is the mystical branch of Islam. So Kabbalah and Judaism, Rosicrucians and Christianity, this like high mystical branch of Islam. And then... The Ahmadiyya, I found, was really interesting. This was that group that believed the Mahdi's already come. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Mirza Ghulam Ahmad was also a prophet that in, in this group that they put up with Muhammad. Muhammad was not the last prophet. We have Ahmad, Ahmadiyya. And he restored Islam. He lived in the early 1900s. And so he, they believe that he is the Mahdi that they've been waiting for. So And so now Islam is the perfect is way. perfect for them. So, yeah, I just, again, super brief overview of a few other groups. I just didn't want people to be like, well, there's just two. <laughs> yeah, so much more complicated than that. So hopefully that uh, inspires you to learn a little bit more. And of course, we'll be talking more about Islam in weeks to come. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be good. And 
Your learning doesn't have to stop at the end of this podcast. Right. You can check out our social media where we put out really great religious studies content. You join our Discord join, where we can a, keep the conversation going. A real conversation about this. Mm-hmm. If you like what you're hearing, you can rep us by checking our spreadsheet and buying some sweet, sweet merch. Patreon. Patreon. Bonus content. Club. Book club. Early release dates. So if you're into this and you want to learn more and you want to participate more, Hop onto Patreon, hop onto Discord, and show us some love. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Peace, Peace be, be with, with you. you. By the late Middle Ages, the Christian prophecy had fulfilled itself.